Before we read uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, the letter to the church in Pergamum, we remind ourselves, who's saying this? This is not me. I'm not saying this. Um, John is not saying this. Jesus is saying this. And John, we've been in Revelation, we saw in chapter 1, John has a revelation, um, literally like an unveiling of what's going on behind the scenes in the present reality, what's happening right then. And he sees Jesus, and he sees Jesus through like, uh, he, he writes an apocalyptic book that uses a lot of imagery. So uh, as he sees Jesus, he sees him as like with feet like burnished bronze and eyes like glowing fire and a sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, this is very important because the sword is not in his hand. The sword is in his mouth. And I think a lot of us interpret Revelation like Jesus has a sword in his hand and he's going to slaughter everybody. He's going to slaughter everyone. But the sword is in his mouth. This is so important to understand. He judges by truth. And if you turn forward to Revelation chapter 5, you read a little bit this last week, in Revelation chapter 5, it says John's there and um, um, they, they're around the throne room and then out comes a scroll and the scroll represents like the like unraveling of how God will like bring about the, the eschalon, the end of all things, how he's going to make the new heavens and the new earth and judge the wicked who have, who have done evil things on this earth and ruined God's good earth. Like, how is this going to happen? Who can, who can unroll this scroll? Who can actually have the character and the, and the righteousness to judge the word, world rightly? And it says no one was found, and John, like, starts crying. Like, oh my gosh, no one. No one can do this. And then an elder puts his hand on, John's like, dude, chill. Um, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And you're like, lions! You're like, super stoked, you're going to see a lion. Um, and then out comes a lamb. And I always thought this was like, a, like hieroglyphics, not hieroglyphics, hologram. That's what I meant to say. Hologram. Like it's lion, lamb, lion, lamb. And then I would move like this and i see lion, lamb, lion, lamb, like that, like, um, like a hologram. But it's not hologram Jesus. It's not what we get. Um, he's called a lion in that he conquers, but he conquers by being a lamb. He conquers by laying his life down. He conquers by, by giving his life for others. And he's the only one who actually has the character and the righteousness to judge the world with his mouth. He will say truth and error. He will say that's wrong. And he will say that's true. And he's the only one with the character to do that because he gave his life for the world. He doesn't have a sword in his hand. That's very, very important when you read Revelation. So I want us to understand this as we read um, the church in, in Pergamum, because you're going to get this image again. And we have to remember, this is Jesus talking, not me or John or whoever. This is Jesus talking to the church in Pergamum. And it says this, and I'll pray after I'm done reading this. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. There's that language. I'm the one who knows how to judge rightly with truth. I know where you live. Last week we got, I know, I know, I know who you are. I know what you're going through. This, this week, it's, or this church, it's, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. There it is again. Not a great place to live, I guess. I don't know. Um, nevertheless, He's like, well done. You live where Satan lives and you have not um, denied my name. You haven't renounced faith in me. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. This is where we kind of all step back. Oh my gosh, here it comes. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites 
to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, only known to the one who receives it. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we open the Scriptures this morning, I pray that you would open our souls, our hearts, our minds, um, our capacities to you. Like we, we, we're here, a lot of us are sitting right now. Um, I ask as we sit, we would be open-hearted, open-minded, open-handed to the things that you would want to say to this church in particular. I pray for those that are not a part of this church, that they would, they would hear these words today as one who judges uh, you, Jesus, who judges righteously and truly, Lord, that they would know Christ who gives us um, true fulfillment and true identity, Lord. Um, and I also pray, God, that this church, the ones that are followers of Jesus here this morning that are part of this church, that you would have a word for us. I pray things in your name. We need your help as we go through them. Holy Spirit, lead us. Amen. Amen. The church always has to live in a world. The church always has to live in a world or the world. Or the church always has to live in this world. Until the day when, as the scriptures teach, God makes all things new. We have to live in this world. In the Eucharist, that is communion, we say this, Christ has died Christ is risen. Christ will come again. But until that last part, Christ will come again. Until that last part, the church lives in the world. The church lives in this world. The church lives in the context of cities like San Francisco. And it's important to realize your identity. It's important to realize your identity. If you are a follower of Jesus, you belong to what the New Testament calls the church, or in Greek it's the ecclesia. It is the called-out assembly who is renewed and repurposed by Christ. A called-out assembly of people who gather around Christ that are renewed by Jesus or being made new by Jesus. Also, That's also true. And repurposed. Your whole life is repurposed by Christ. Redeemed, renewed, repurposed. No longer do you live for the desires of your body or your mind, but you live under another Lord. You live under another master, the God of creation who created you to partner with him to bring about his peace and his righteousness in this world. That's who you are. You've been redeemed, renewed, and repurposed to that and for that. And this is, this is so important to understand this storyline. If you have a hard time understanding the storyline, you're going to have a hard time understanding the book of Revelation because it assumes that there is a people in a certain place who have been called out by Jesus, and they have tension. There's tension living in the city, but there's also tension living faithful to Jesus. So there's tension almost from both sides, but you have one who's overcome. So whenever Jesus um, shows up to one of these churches, he reveals himself by uh, his character, shows a little bit about what that church needs, Right? So, um, like last week, um, to the church in Smyrna who were dying for their faith, he's like, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life again. You are being killed. I'm the one who was killed and came to life again. So trust me, I can give you new life. Um, this week, we have a church who is not living into truth. And Jesus says, I'm the truth. I, have, I, have, I judge rightly with a sword that comes out of my mouth. I'm truth. I can divide truth and error. I can do that. And I will do that in your church. 
Um, and so we have to remember, like, we are, we are people. So if you are part of that people, you have to understand the context to which this is written. Now, if you're not a part of that people, um, this might be hard for you to understand. I hope that you're given ears to hear today. I hope that you understand this. The, the problem, though, is that we're flesh. Um, we're malleable beings that are so easily formed by our society, our world, our, our worldview, our culture. And we're also easily led astray. We live in a world, and a world lives in us, Frederick Buechner says. We live in a world, and a world lives in us. We're a complex people who live in a very complex world. And in that complexity, both in the world and in us, there's another major player in the game that we don't often give voice to. And this other major player in the game is the devil, the Satan. He's introduced in the story of Scripture in the third chapter of Genesis, the very beginning of the, of, of the Scriptures. And then he's made explicit in Revelation, or you can say he's unveiled in Revelation, because that's what Revelation is, an unveiling. He's unveiled here um, in Revelation chapter 12. It says that the ancient snake called the devil, the ancient snake is the serpent, right, in Genesis chapter 3. So it connects the two. It's like unveiling, oh, that snake is actually called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So it's unmasking this liar, this tempter, this one who leads the whole world astray. See, the devil or the Satan desires to lead everyone astray, desires to lead the people of God astray, the people that are not from God astray. He, 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 he wants to lead the whole world away from God and God's purposes for humanity, to lead us astray, to malign our souls. Now, this right here, when I say this is, this is what God calls us to, this is who God is, and then there's Satan, this is where some of you step off the crazy train. You're like, okay, that's where I step off. It was nice going to this church. You are obviously insane. Like, there isn't a devil. Devil is fun for entertainment, but you can't really believe that there's a real evil force in the world trying to lead everyone astray from a good God. You just can't believe that. We just don't have, like, other third world countries believe that where they're not educated. We know better. But this is exactly what, this, this is what I'm saying. This is what the scripture is saying. I'm not just saying this. Um, a, a Columbia University professor of humanities and self-proclaimed secular liberal. If you find yourself in that camp, he's in your camp. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan, How, America, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. The Death of Satan, How Americans Lost Their Sense of Evil, where he argues that we need to bring the language and the reality of Satan back into our cultural vocabulary because we moderns have no category, no true, real, good category to deal with evil which has made it almost impossible to cope with evil. We don't cope with evil, he writes, because we can't define evil. We actually just change the channel. This is what he says. We change the channel. He says, quote, We see some horror on TV, some shocking new cruelty seizes our attention. It is likely to be met with consternation or annoyance. We shudder or wince. Then we switch the channel. And that's what we do. He actually opens his book like this. He says, it's on the screen, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. The repertoire of evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. We have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. We have no language for it. And you might be here and a very modern intellectual person, you're like, the devil is where I step off. There is no devil. There is no true evil force in the world. Well, this professor 
argues that we need to recapture that language. Revelation actually has language for it. The scriptures have language for it. And that's exactly what this secular professor argues for, a renewal of that biblical language. Even though he's not arguing for the Bible, he's like, we need to renew this language. We need to to recapture it because there's an evil in the world and we don't have language to deal with it. He says there used to be language to deal with it, but now we don't have language. He quotes a British writer and he says this, a few people still believe in what the British writer um, Ian McEwen has recently called a malign principle, a force in human affairs that periodically advances to dominate and destroy the lives of individuals or nations, then retreats to wait to the next, for the next occasion. He's talking about Satan, obviously. He says, we certainly no longer have a conception of evil as, distributed, um, as a distributed entity with an ontological essence of its own as what some philosophers call presence. We don't have a thing that we go, that present, that's an evil presence, or that's personified by the devil. We don't have that. Yet something that feels like this force still invades our existence. Something evil still lurks behind television screens and in our, in our cities and in our jobs. And we still discover in ourselves the capacity to inflict evil on others. Since this is true, he writes, we have an inescapable problem. We feel something that our culture no longer gives us the vocabulary to express. We feel evil. There is something evil in the world, and we don't have the vocabulary to express it. We call it by some social science definition or sociological factor, but we know that doesn't go deep enough. But again, revelation gives us a vocabulary. It reveals or unveils what's really going on in the world. And I think it's what Andrew Del Banco wants to know, the author of that book, what he wants to know, what is this evil? And Revelation says this evil is cosmic and it's transcendent. And Jesus reveals to John that what's going on in the world is not simply everything with money and violence and power is not what they seem. They're not what they seem. They might look and we, we, we cloak them with these things. But what John, what Jesus does in Revelation, he pulls back to show what money really is and what violence really is and what power really is. See, we think money is simply greed of some egotistical people who want to make just a little bit more. Isn't that right? It's just, it's just all in the ego. And Revelation would say, no. Isn't violence just protecting the way of life we all want to live? Revelation would say, no. Isn't power and prosperity really blessings from God? And Revelation would say, no. These things are actually ultimately evil. They are actually ultimately satanic. And what I'm saying is that if you don't have language that unveils the evil behind our world, we won't have the knowledge or the wisdom to resist it. We will think our greed is just the American way. And all I have to do is give a little of my money away so I don't feel bad about how I make what I make. Not just simply how much you make, but how you make what you make. Just give a little away and it's going to be fine. We think violence is just protecting our way of life. That's just, there's violence in the world, and that's just how we protect the American way. We will think becoming more and more powerful is just God blessing us. We will think that condoning what God calls immoral in the church is just a way that we're, a way that we're supposed to love others. And you might be thinking, okay, I, I can probably go with you with a couple things on those lists. I'm against, you might be against violence. You're like, oh, I'm against violence. I'm, all, I'm anti-violent. Okay. And some forms of greed, you might be, agree with me on that, some forms of greed, especially corporate greed, and maybe even power, that's corruptive, but immorality 
or more specifically into this letter here, in this letter here, specifically sexual immorality, you have to be kidding. Like, no one, no one believes that anymore. We moved on from that. We're, we're a nonviolent world, but we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Well, look what Jesus tells this church. This is what he says to this church. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Doesn't sound like a fun place to live, but that's where they live. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Um, let me just make a comment real quick. I had no idea that the Church of Revelation would be this heavy for our church, by the way, when I started studying this or when I started teaching this. So if you're like, I don't know how much more I can take of this, um, four more weeks, okay? <laughs> That's the answer to that question is four more. But this is so, I think this is good. It is good. It has to be good, right? It's in the Bible. It's good. So he says to them this, I, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. You remain true to my name, even in the, days of this, uh, in the days of Antipas, who was martyred, he was killed, in your city where Satan lives. Now, Jesus here is revealing to this church that there are, uh, like, diabolic realities that are going on in their city that they cannot see. He says, you don't know this, but Satan actually lives in your city. I don't know what this actually like literally means if like Satan like lives there, like he had a house there or something, or had a throne, like a little throne there, or does it mean like Satan has power over this city? Um, we're taught kind of both of those things in Scripture, so I don't know exactly what's going on, but it's not good. But what Jesus is doing is is unveiling something. It's like, okay, you think that your city is just nice and opulent. It was uh, Pergamon was the capital city of um, of, uh, of of Asia at that time, and because of that. Uh, this city was opulent and wealthy and powerful and, um, and, and full of temples. And, um, and so what Jesus is saying is that what's really going on is that your, your city has Satan living in it. It seems that Satan tried to persecute the church even. Like the, 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 the Satan or the deceiver or the liar or the devil, what he was trying to do in the church at Pergamum was he tried to persecute the church uh, so that they would, he would intimidate them by violence, that they would like deny Christ's name. And they, he tried to do that, and there was a guy named Antipas there, it seems, who was put to death because of it. And Jesus is saying, well done, you didn't deny my name. It seems like it didn't work. Satan tried to go out that, at this church with violence, and like, if you do not worship Rome or Caesar or the gods, if you don't worship, then you will die. And Satan tried to use this ploy, like using Rome for this thing, and they said, no, we will not do this, and they, some of them died. And Jesus says, well done, you've remained true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, like we talked about Polycarp last week. Well done, you didn't do this. But then he says this in verse 14. He says, nevertheless, you, you've done that. Satan tried this, and it didn't work. Nevertheless, I have uh, a few things against you, which means he, here's, here's how you're not doing that well. Here's something that you need to be warned about. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrifice, sacrifice to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have, you also have those who hold the te teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent. All right, keep that up on the screen. What seems to be happening is because Satan can't lead the church astray by persecution and violence, because he's tried to lead the church astray by persecution, he's like, if you don't Deny Christ, I'm going to kill you. And the church in Pergamum said, then kill us. Send the lions. We're not going to bow down. Because it didn't work, Satan then tried another way. Satan's like, okay, this persecution thing isn't working, so I'm going to try it another way. And the way he, the, the strategy he employed was seduction. 
Violence won't do it. Um, they'll die for Jesus' name, but will they be seduced? Can I seduce them? And if you remember from a few weeks ago, I said that no one really knows what the Nicolaitans were or what they taught exactly. But here, Jesus parallels the teachings of the Nicolaitans to the teachings of Balaam. Look, look at the screen again. It says this. Look at the parallel. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, and at the end, those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we can intuit that the way the teaching of Balaam led the Israelites astray here, the way that Balaam led the Israelites astray in the Old Testament is the same way the teachings of the Nicolaitans are leading the church in Pergamum away. Are you with me? So he's parallel on the two. He's saying, okay, you're led astray by following the teachings of Balaam, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So he's parallel on the two. He's saying that the way that, that Israelites were led astray by Balaam is the way the church is being led astray by the Nicolaitans. This is what he's saying. Now, so what, is, what does Balaam have to do with it? And who is Balaam? Balaam is an Old Testament story found in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Balak was a king in Moab, not Balaam, Balak. He was a king in Moab. And, and, and he hired a, 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 like, a, like a false prophet named Balaam to curse Israel as they were about to cross into the promised land. So he called up, you know, sent for Balaam. He's like, Balaam, I have a task for you. I need you to curse Israel. They're trying to cross over the, to the promised land, and I don't want them to do it. So I want you to stand on a high mountain. I want you to pronounce cursings over them. You're going to curse them and curse them. And Balaam's like, deal, done. I'll, I'll, I'll curse them. I'll, I'll say whatever God wants me to say. So he gets up on this mountain, and he goes, blessings. And he blesses them instead of curses them. He's like, like he just blesses him and he comes down and then, and Balak, the king's like, what are you doing? Like I told you to curse them. And he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, man. Like I tried to and I, I, I started speaking and then all, only thing that came to my, out of my mouth were blessings. We'll try it again. So he goes, try it again. You know, he tries to curse them but blessings come out. He's like, it's not working. So he tries another way. He's like, oh, I have an idea. This is not working. This, this whole like pronouncing cursing. I, I think I have a way to ruin Israel. Seduction. If we send Moabite girls into the Israelite camp to seduce them by inviting these people to take part in idolatrous and immoral feasts, then God himself will curse them. We'll seduce them. We'll just send people in and through their seduction, allow them to come into immoral practices and immoral feasts. And we won't, I, I, I can't curse, but we can seduce. And guess what? It worked, and it seduced. They sent all these uh, Moabite women into the camp, and they seduced the camp away from following the true God of Israel and, and getting into these false, um, these idolatrous feasts and idolatrous practices. And Jesus is looking back at this Old Testament story and saying this is, this is what's happening in, happening in Pergamum. Satan has tried to bring about their ruin by persecution, but it didn't work. So Satan dusted off his old playbook. He's like, where has it worked before? Oh, right there. Blew it off like this one will work. Seduction. Let's try seduction. And he sent the Nicolaitans to seduce the church away by teaching a relaxing of moral, the moral ways the people of God were to live into. Just relax your morality a little bit. Just relax. And it worked. And it was working in Pergamum. And Jesus said, stand firm. Do not be seduced by lies. And because they were led astray, they ate food sacrificed to idols and they committed sexual immorality. I think the seduction of Pergamum was that the lie that they were believing was that there was nothing 
going on behind the scenes. The lie that they were believing is that there's nothing going on behind the scenes. What you see is all the reality that there is. If you can't see it, it's not real. The only reality that there truly is is what you see. So food is just fuel, and idols are just wood, and sex is just body. This is what they're saying. This is the lie. Like, listen, food is just fuel, and idols are just wood, and sex is just body. And I think we kind of functionally believe the same thing today. And we do, but we have all these questions, right? There's all these things around that. We might believe that functionally, but we don't really believe that. If we did believe that, why do we use food to eat our feelings? Why do we use food to punish ourselves from enjoying life? Why do we eat food while watching the Food Network? That's not part of the sermon. That's actually like a real question. Like why, why does that happen? Why... Do we have to put laws around sex on college campuses if sex is just about the body? Why do we hear testimony of people who are sexually abused and it's, it's like something has happened to their soul and not just their body? See, to the degree that we see the world as it really is, to the degree that we see, we see ourselves as we really are, to the degree that we see God and His grace as it really is, to that degree we live a whole life. To the degree that we see the world as it really is, ourselves and God as it really is, to that degree we actually live into true humanity. We actually live into true life. And if God created us, and he did, he's the only one that can reveal who, what the world is, who he is, and who we are. And we're not just a body. We are a soul, and the Christian life is the integration of both our body and soul in communion with God. Food is not just, a, uh, not, it's not just food. Food is not just food. Food is a spiritual act. It's not an accident that Jesus left us with a meal to be in communion with him. He left, did you think, have you ever thought about that? He left us a meal. I want you to remember me, okay? Everyone get around, break this bread, drink this wine. You are remembering me. Around a meal, because meals are sacred, meals mean something. To have a meal with Jesus means something, and to have a meal with a demon means something. Those are real things. And when we think, oh, no, no, we're way, way, way more advanced than that. There's no demons and there's no demons in foods and they're not really connected and food is just food. Food is just fuel. It means nothing else. No, it actually means a lot. It has meaning. Food has meaning. Jesus says, repent of going into meals where you know there's demon activity, but someone has taught you that it's no big deal. You can't, when people say you can... At that time, you can dine with demons because there's no real spiritual world. What we can see is all the reality that there is, and food is just food. And Jesus says, repent of sexual morality, which is the word porneo, which this word has always meant sex outside of a life covenant of marriage between husband and wife. It's always meant that it's never meant anything different. And then Jesus ups the bar on porneo and says that if you actually lust after someone in your heart, you're guilty of sin. So here's the deal. Every single person in here is guilty. Every single person here, to some degree or another, is sexually broken. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're being put back together by Jesus into true humanity. But Jesus still says this. He says, repent of the teaching in the church where some will call good what God has called not good. Repent of the teaching where some will call amoral what God calls immoral. And it's not up for us to decide that. It's up to God to decide that. 
And this is what Jesus is saying to this church in Pergamum. And, and if, if you remember from the church in Ephesus, tolerance is not a biblical virtue. I wish it was. No, actually, I don't wish it was. It sounds way better if it was. It's not. Patience is a biblical virtue, and understanding is a biblical virtue, and civility is a biblical virtue, and graciousness is a biblical virtue, and, and mercy is, and humility is, but not tolerance, not in the church. Jesus starts his public ministry with the same word he tells Pergamum, repent. Jesus started his public ministry, Jesus by saying, repent, which denotes intolerance. He says, turn from your ways to the kingdom of God. Jesus is intolerant about lies, about ways we would live our lives that are not the way he created us to live or recreated us to live. Remember, to the degree that we see the world as it really is, and the degree that we see ourselves as we really are, and to the degree that we see God's grace as it really is, to that degree, we are able to live into a whole life. So, let's ask ourselves here, how are we doing? How are we doing with this? I think the biggest lie that we are told, and I think the biggest lie that we believe, not just culturally, but I even think in this church, is that what we do with our bodies has no effect on our souls. I think that's a lie that culture has taught us and that most people in this church live into. My present company included. I'm not leaving myself out of any of this. That we live into this lie that what we do with our bodies doesn't have any really effect on our souls. Whether it's food or drink or sex. And this is a lie. And it's like we know it's some sort of evil what we do with our bodies. And but we don't have language for it. We don't know how to get out of it. Sia has this song called Chandelier that I've been obsessed with for like a year. <laughs> in the Grammy, she sang it, and Kristen Wiig did this. You should YouTube it. Kristen Wiig danced it on her. It was incredible. Anyway, just YouTube it when you get home. Trust me. And the lyrics, I, I, the song is so anthemic. It's like so like, I, if it, I just want to sing it. I'm not, I just don't sing. I just want to sing it really loud. I want to sing it right now. It's just so, but it's, it's, the lyrics are so haunting. They're incredibly haunting. I mean, I, I, I would imagine you might have heard the song, but it's about, the song is about drinking, partying, swinging from a chandelier. And she does it to hide from her tomorrow. So she, so she doesn't, because she doesn't want that to exist, she's trying to hold on for dear life and just keep her glass full until morning because she do, doesn't want to face tomorrow. And this happens over and over and over again. And then the second verse sums this all up. And she says, the sun is up and I'm a mess. And this, I think this is like, this is what we feel. The sun is up, I'm a mess. I got to get out now. got to run from this. Here comes the shame. Here comes the shame. Like that is so haunting. Like I've done the thing I wanted to do. Like I do it over and over and over and over again. And drink is not just drink and food is not just food and sex is not just sex because here comes the shame. Who taught me to feel shame like this? Here here it comes. But then the very next line, one, two, three, one, two, three, drink. One, two, three, one, two, three, drink. Throw them back until I lose count. And it goes over and over again. Uh, One MTV critic, when the song first came out, said this, quote, and it's on the screen, it's just, like, he says, like, is this the underlying meaning of all those forget, 
the consequences, let's get drunk tracks we love? Is this the underlying meaning of all those F the consequences, let's get drunk tracks we love? What does it say about us that we connect to them so easily? Sorry if we're getting a little Mariah Carey right now, hashtag too deep. That's his, he said that, not me. I, I don't talk like that. But then he says this, listen, this don't, don't. He goes, sorry, we're getting a little Mariah Carey right now, but Sia's new song has us left, has left us with a lot of feelings that we need to sort out. Is this the reason, this song, like the reason why we like all those, like, let's just get drunk and just forget all the consequences. Is this the reason why, like, we love all those songs? What's this say about us? He goes, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get too deep. Like, we just got, I got to sort some things out here. Sort them out then. What is it? What is it? What, we can actually replace one, two, three, one, two, three, drink with like one, two, three, one, two, three, food or sex or drugs or work or whatever. And we do it over and over again and we hate ourselves afterwards. Here comes the shame. Because we know that there is more going on than just substances and our bodies. We've been seduced. We've been lied to. We've been seduced by bottles of vodka and, and lines of cocaine and boxes of condoms. And we've been seduced by those things. And Jesus says, repent, which is the most beautiful word in the world. He's saying there's actually an opportunity. There's actually a way to turn from that to true life. Because that goes over and over and on and on and on until something else happens, whether your death or you coming to realize that this is, this is maddening. But there's an opportunity to turn. There's an opportunity to repent. And so what Jesus does here, he strengthens us by truth. He's like, be strengthened by this truth, that those are lies and this is truth. But then he was softened by love. Because look how he ends. He says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have ears today and you can hear this, not just listen to it, but hear it deep, deep, deep down. To the one who is victorious, meaning to the one who actually heard Jesus and repented and then lives in step in life, a life of repentance. He says, I will give some of the hidden manna. That is so cool. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, only known to the one who receives it. This is fulfillment and this is identity. The hidden manna, manna in scripture, is how God feeds his people. And in the New that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm that thing which truly satisfies you. And Jesus says, if you overcome, I will give you hidden manna. Now, why is it hidden because it's not visible. You don't, you don't really have it. Even, you don't even have all of it yet. You have Jesus in a certain part right now, but you're going to get him fully, and you're going to see it fully, and it's not really visible yet. You have to actually wait on it. And what you're supposed to do is contrast this with the food that's sacrificed to idols. You can have food sacrificed to idols right now, but it will leave you empty and enslaved, and it will ultimately exclude you from the feast that's to come. Or you can have hidden manna that you don't really, truly, fully see with your eyes right now. And you get glimpses of this now, but there is a day coming when it won't be hidden anymore, and you will see it. And you will see Jesus, the true man, the true better life. You will see it and it won't be hidden anymore. If you repent and turn to Christ, there's fulfillment there. And then there's ultimate fulfillment on that day when you see him. There's some hidden, some kind of like 
hold, held to the side. You don't get it all now. Like the best is still yet to come, and you have to wait for it. You have to endure. Or you can have your idols today, your food sacrifice to idols, your drink, your sex, whatever it is today, and see how empty it leaves you. Or you can have true manna, Jesus. And then he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. This white stone, he basically says, is a new name. I will also give you, that person, a white stone with a new name written on it. He's going to give us a new name. And the cool thing is that it's an intimate name. No one knows it but the person who gets it. It's like if I told Ashley, my wife, like there's a name that I only call her that no one else knows. And that's like this intimate thing I have with my wife. Jesus is like, I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to have a name for you that this is between you and me. Because this whole life you're going to live is a life of intimacy. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new name and I'm, I'm, I'm forgiving you of your past. And you are no longer defined by your weakness or your, or your ailments or your abuse or your addictions or your old identity constructs. You are now my beloved. You are mine and I'm putting over you my name. I'm giving you a new identity so those old things don't define you anymore. Those old identity markers don't define you. And I'm giving you now the name Christian. I'm giving you now the name bought by the beloved. I'm giving you now the name forgiven, redeemed, restored, renewed, and repurposed for my kingdom forever and ever and ever. And this is what Jesus offers to the one who turns, to the one who repents. Let's, church, I, I know that to stop believing this lie that our, that a body is just a body and food is just food and drink is just drink and substances are just substances and they have no spiritual consequences or soul consequences. That's a lie hard to break. It starts by repenting, meaning I'm turning from the what I think and I'm believing what God says by faith. I'm turning from what I think and turning to what Christ has said and I trust Jesus. Let's move into a time where we do that together. Let's pray.